Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yes, it's true. We did. We got the band back together and we are in the studio, the split studio. We are so technologically advanced. We're not even in the same state. Here I am in Tennessee with Mark, Mark Whitlock. I'm Nate Larkin, of course, and joining us, our co-host with the most from the left coast, Aaron Porter out in, yeah, you're not in San Luis exactly. Where are you, Aaron? Oh, I'm 15 minutes from San Luis, north in Atascadero now. That's right, Atascadero, The, the town I grew up in. Yeah, yeah. Atas- okay. Atascadero like does mean mud hole. Oh, is that what it or means? Or <laughs> something, yeah, or possibly something more vulgar. Uh, Raul de Leon told me when I worked in a restaurant in Los Angeles that Mudhole was a generously kind uh, translation of Atascadero. <laughs> All right. Oh, man. Yeah. Sounds like Pinky Tuscadero's cousin were a dance that they okay. do on Dancing with the Stars. There you go. There you go. What's it, what's it like? <laughs> we... we What's it like, Aaron, to live in the town where you grew up? Uh, that's, that is an interesting question. I've been thinking about that a lot. Uh, I really loved growing up in this town. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I left was because I loved it so much. And I was so idealistic when I was 17, 18, that I thought I have to leave. And then it's okay that I like it so much and can come back. So okay. I left. Uh, but my wife grew up in an even smaller teeny town, kind of a migrant field worker town of population about 300, 400 yeah. when she was growing up. So she only made it one year in Los Angeles before it almost wrecked her. And she, uh, we got married and she said, take me home. Yeah. But I would say uh, the weirdest thing about living in the town that I grew up is uh, the amount of people that attend the church I pastor that I thought were old people when I was a kid at the church I grew up in. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Evidently, they were not old people back then. <laughs> but, uh, or, uh, or else they're really old now, and they wear it well. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it is just odd. I would say a quarter, close to a quarter of our church is made up of adults that I grew up with who were adults when I was a kid. Wow. And that was strange for a little while. It's really hard to call them by their first names. In fact, I still don't sometimes. <laughs> I still I still have to call them Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. Wow. I'm afraid my mom will get mad at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Aaron, you are the master of many careers. Uh, you not only pastor that church, but you, you write some engineering reports on the side. You do counseling. You do soul architecture consulting. Uh, and then you play music. You were off. You were off playing at a very interesting venue last week. Tell us about that. Yeah, I uh, I was hired to play at a political fundraiser, which was a first time for me. Okay, uh, and it was at a place called the Warbirds Museum, which is really a junkyard for military jets, and you can just walk around and walk right up and touch a a Tomcat or an F four Phantom or an F sixteen. It is amazing. Uh, I love taking the kids there, but it's usually expensive to get in because they have to keep bringing in all these amazing things. So I took uh, took one of my kids as my roadie so he could get into the event and then just walk around for hours uh, uh, inside the place. Who'd you take? Awesome. Did you take Except Caleb? It, 
I I took Samuel. Took Caleb Samuel. was actually we had our local colony days and they reproduce what's called tent city when they first made this town it was just a bunch of tents and so he dresses up with a bunch of other kids his age and adults in period appropriate costumes and he is a newsie so he goes around selling newspapers for two cents but if people pay more he gets to keep it all so once a year he makes he makes a fat stack because kids dressed up in period appropriate costumes selling newspapers get more than two cents for their newspapers what a cool thing. What a cool thing. So how did the it's gig good. go out at the uh, at the uh, Jet Junkyard? It was great. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, it seemed like an older crowd. It was in Paso Robles, so there's m- more of a cowboy kind of thing. Yeah. And as the older crowd came in, I thought, oh, this will be fun. I'll play some, like, Sinatra and Bobby Darin. So I started playing that and got no reaction from people. Jumped over some Woody Guthrie. Yeah, all right. Okay, it's going to be Woody Guthrie and Johnny Cash night. Okay. I can rule out <laughs> okay. Tom Waits altogether with that crowd. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, I had... So, yeah, it went... I've been Go living ahead. vicariously through you, Aaron, because I, I'm doing, like, nothing these days. Uh, ever, <laughs> a- Allie had surgery uh, three weeks ago, and I am primary caregiver. Which means, since she really can't get out of the house, I can't get out of the house. Uh, it's just this uh, endless, uh, you know, revolving schedule of meals and physical therapy and knee treatments and conversations and medications. And I, it really has revealed to me how daggone self-centered I am. Uh, I do my best to keep a smile on and appear noble and Allie tells everybody I'm wonderful and I think she sincerely believes I am. Uh, but holy smokes, I, I, I was tired of it by day two. I don't like having to focus on somebody other than me, really. I like it when, um, when everybody is focused on me. Basically, that's when life is good for me. And so I've been... Uh, Encountering the world mostly through my laptop. Uh, thank God I've not gone places on the laptop that I have been in years past. It's been healthy stuff. Um, and uh, Allie and I have been watching a lot of Andy Stanley. Huh. Uh, she's been DVRing him. Boy, that guy can preach and uh, go right to the heart of the matter. So, and I haven't even been to church in three weeks. We've watched. Uh, the the uh, preaching from our church online. I did escape from the house today to come do the podcast. Actually, Allie's doing really well physically. That's She's good. coming along. That's good. But uh, not much well, to report I, from my I, life other than you know yeah, adventures. I'm, I'm, I'm curious though. Yeah, that's you. You spend a huge chunk of your life focusing on other people in your. Uh, work and your walks with guys and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Is it is it just because you're at home so limited? It's you just aren't getting the stimulation you usually get. Yeah, I think that's because I don't of think it. it's just about selfishness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really do miss uh, getting out and uh, you know walking Main Street, hanging with the uh, hanging with the guys. You know, I don't go for a morning walk each day with a guy. Uh, just because I'm, you know, fascinated about his life. Um, you know, it's, it's this interaction. <laughs> it helps I me. I hope they're not listening. It, it, no, no. 
I mean, it's a good thing to do, and I and it's uh, and I'm glad I do it. But sometimes guys, you know, they they're just so grateful that I do this, and they can't believe that I would actually mark out an hour of my schedule to spend time with them, as though it's an altruistic, uh, you know, act on my part. And I tell them the same thing that my sponsors told me early on. Hey, I do this for me. Um, uh, it, service is something that in the end accrues as much to my benefit as it does to anybody else's. And I do miss those, those, those walks. Yeah. But anyway, it's a great day. So, Good to be here. Mark, what's new in your life, brother? You know, I, I was sitting over here listening to both of you guys and I was going, you know, I am not going to be Eeyore today. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to yeah. let my ears droop. But, uh, our topic today, uh, is something that, I'm struggling with. Mm-hmm. I've probably used this analogy before, but uh, I feel like uh, my recovery over the last four plus years has been like archaeology. Mm-hmm. You dig down, you hit a piece of pottery, you clean it all off, you take the pictures of it, you study it. Okay, this is what this layer means. And then you keep digging. Right. And I guess about six months ago, I hit another layer. Yeah. And uh, I'm struggling being willing to, to deal with that layer. And I think my... Um, my, uh, it's not apathy. What's the story I'm looking for? Uh, ambivalence mm-hmm. about, uh, some of these things is, you know, is causing some, is causing a little turmoil. Right. So uh, I'm looking forward to today's discussion to talk about that. And I don't mean to be vague in, in what I'm saying. Let's just, you know, let's just say that, you know, life is complicated. Those of you who are, uh, divorced or in, or, and, or in second marriages know that it's a whole lot more complicated than you ever can imagine. Yeah. It's a lot more complicated than just marriage. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, um, so all of, all of those issues, children, stepchildren, marriage, um, legal paperwork with mm-hmm. the ex, all of those things, you stir all that up with life, Yeah, with schedules and work and wh- where you go. And, and it's a, it's an interesting stew for life, and uh, so again, I'm looking forward to today's today's discussion. Excellent. Okay. Well, we'll get rolling on that when we come back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast.
Welcome back to our exciting topic today. I've been waiting to do this topic for, what, it's been like four weeks. Um, today we are talking about willingness, mm. which if people are in uh, any 12-step program, they're probably very familiar with that word. Uh, but I was thinking about it a few weeks ago just because I realized in my own life, most of the most of the times that I hit just a plateau of I'm not growing, I'm not seeing a lot of change, if I look in my own heart, I'm really not that willing to change. I don't want to. I kind of am comfortable mm-hmm. with where I'm at. I'm even comfortable with my own sad and hurt feelings or bitter pieces of the puzzle. They've just become a part of my decoration, my interior decoration. Mm-hmm. And it might be an ugly chair that nobody else would like, but it, it fits me just fine. <laughs> so uh, willingness, uh, I, I saw it defined as an being eager, eagerly compliant. Yeah. Which that just exhausted me even seeing that definition. I'm like, really? Nah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm just worn out uh, with two teenagers in the house and two elementary school children. Uh, eagerly doesn't, isn't how I would describe a lot. So I tried to research some of this, and man, I'll tell you, I, I researched cultivating willingness or uh, cultivating surrender. There is not a lot out there. I did find a positive study on farmers cultivating willingness of edible fungus, which I thought I thought would be a fascinating website, but it was password protected. Darn those fungus farmers. They're a secretive bunch. Um, I, I also found a good Huffington Post uh, article from 2011, and I want to start by reading a couple things from this. And then hand it off to you, Nate, because I think you've thought about this a lot more than me, and I want to learn from that. But uh, this writer, Pillar Gerasimo, I'm pretty sure I didn't pronounce either of those correctly, was talking about the difference between willpower and willingness. Yeah. And he wrote, he wrote, we Americans love the idea of willpower. It's forceful, bold, intrepid. It reeks of individual determination, and it suggests just enough stalwart, stalwart endurance to satisfy our stoic sensibilities. Good sentence. The will speaks of co- uh, a commanding voice. Go forth. Make it so. And there's some kickstart value in that. But I would argue that the real key to creating positive change over time is not so much will as it is willingness. Mm. The will tends to think it has all the answers, and it doesn't relish asking for directions. Mm -hmm. Willingness, on the other hand, is full of open-minded inquiries like, how might I go about getting started on this project? Or what would happen if I tried this? What would be most helpful now? Where the will never says die, willingness is continually reborn, and it gets smarter and stronger each time around. Wow. So instead of saying, if there's a will, there's a way, you'd say, when someone is willing, they will find a way. (laughs) That's. uh, I, I think he would probably say, when someone's willing they will ask directions to the way. Uh, yeah. So give me some of your thoughts, some of your wisdom from uh, years of 
this recovery. Yeah. For those not in recovery, tell me about how willingness works in that and some things you've learned. Well, you know, willingness is 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 the the key ingredient that we have to have at the front end, at the front end to even enter this process. And uh, most of us are not uh, willing to change. We want a different outcome, but we're not willing uh, without some outside influence, or I, uh, let's put it a different way, without some bitter experience. We're not willing uh, to pay the price for change. You know, one of the things I really love to do is introduce guys uh, to recovery, to fish them out of the soup. I love getting that phone call from a guy who just hit the wall. And I, I get to give him the good news that he has the golden ticket. He now has what it takes to get into a whole new way of life that'll change everything. It's far bigger than he thinks. It's more than an escape from his addiction. It is an entrance into a whole new way of life. Now, here's what I've, but, but what I try to gauge the first time I meet a guy is his level of willingness because that is the most certain predictor of whether or not uh, he's ready, whether he's going to succeed at this point. Here's what I know. If a guy calls me and asks to meet because his wife or his girlfriend has told him to. The odds that he's going to succeed are low. Huh. Odds are he's called me, he's, he's buying time. He's trying to pacify the person he's disappointed or pissed off. He's trying to show that he's making some kind of an effort to change. Uh, <clears throat> but... Uh, the level of surrender it's going to take for him to get through the door probably isn't there. He's probably still in bargaining mode. I'll still meet with him. I will only meet with a guy who calls me and asks. If a woman calls and says, will you meet with my boyfriend or husband or son? I will say yes if he calls. But I will not make an appointment with a person for another person because then... It's, I, I know that's a, that's just not a, that's a non-starter. Um, it's not uncommon for me to have that first conversation with somebody who's still, you know, bargaining with a life or with a life partner. Uh, and I do my best to plant seeds and to uh, cast a vision and give an invitation. It's not unusual for that person then to disappear. What they do is what I did so many times when I came close to surrender but was unwilling to pay the price. Um, they tell themselves that they're going to turn over a new leaf. They try to gain the new information. They make fresh resolutions. Um, when I tell them what it's actually going to cost to get this new life, it's, it's a price higher than they're willing to pay. To get this new life, you have to admit that you can't change on your own, that there's no way, you don't have the power to do it. You're going to have to uh, ask other people for help. You have to really, the, the doorway is low. You have to become humble to get in. Uh, to win the war, you have to surrender. You've got to give up. Uh, and if a guy's not ready to do that, uh, I can tell him, he'll thank me for my time. He'll make some resolutions. He may make me some promises. And then he'll disappear. And often I won't see him for another year, two, three. But then it's not unusual. 
because God allows us uh, to let our own insanity beat uh, sense into us. It's not unusual for after the guy hits another wall, and maybe this time the job is over, the marriage is over, uh, the STD test comes back positive, uh, some horrendous consequence. Uh, he's, he's, he's made some more attempts to do it on his own and has failed again. And perhaps this time uh, he's willing. And when, I, when he calls the second time, now I know the chances that we're going to do it, uh, that he's going to be able, that he's willing enough, are much improved. You know, what's interesting is that I, I called you yeah. in t- 2012, uh-huh. and we met together. We mm-hmm. walked a few times. We um, worked on the audiobook for uh, Samson and the Pirate Monks together. But it probably wasn't until about nine months in that um, I was not just uh, trying to demonstrate change, mm-hmm. that I actually became using our word today, I became willing to look at it Yeah, myself. I was sitting in the group looking at all the guys and realizing that um, they, each, each of the men in the circle knew a different me because of the way I presented myself to each of the guys. Yeah. And what you had talked about, what my counselor talked about, everything I've been stirring up in me to try to figure out what's going on, all that kind of started to come into light. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, I, I called you of my own accord and everything you've just said, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm grateful to hear you say that, say that cause you must've thought my chances were okay, but it was nine months later at yeah. least, I think, I think nine or 10 months later that things snapped Yeah, and I snapped into place. Well, we all bargain with this thing. I mean, it, was, it, was, it took me three and a half years to get my first taste, solid taste of sexual sobriety. And that's because, um, you know, when I first came in, I was willing to do some things and unwilling to do others. I was willing to come to meetings. Uh, I was willing to designate a sponsor eventually. Uh, that was kind of the next thing. But I wasn't willing to call every day. I wasn't willing to. I wasn't willing to really ask for direction and take direction. I was, you know, I so, was. I wasn't willing, for example, to give up masturbation. That seemed too high a price to pray, pay for freedom. And they say in recovery, you got to be willing to go to any length. And to me, uh, because my thinking was so screwed up, I thought that without sex with self, if I had no sex at all, I was going to die. I was going to become impotent. I was going to, I was going to become Stephen Hawking or something. I don't know what I thought, but life was going to be diminished. Uh, and I wasn't willing to pay that price. When I finally, through bitter experience and through inspiration, by seeing how full uh, the lives of, of guys were who'd made that surrender and how life hadn't gotten poorer for them, but it become richer, it wasn't until I was willing to surrender that uh, and do other things, like uh, give up a private office to work out in public where I'd be less, uh, I'd be less prone uh, less uh, susceptible to drifting off someplace on the internet. It wasn't until I was, you know, became willing to go to any length that I really began to enter into this life and taste uh, the fruit of serenity. So let me let me ask this because there's 
there's a big part of uh, growing that comes from surrendering and not trusting in my own flesh, mm -hmm. right? That's why we have the promise revocation sheet. What are the things I've committed to uh, with my willpower? Um, so how does that tie in with Jesus dealing with his disciples, asking them to pray in the garden and saying that their their spirits were willing, but their flesh were weak, and that's why they kept failing to do what was right in front of them to do? Is that is that not a tie-in? Maybe it's not, but I'm seeing guys failing to do what they want to do, and it, it seems like it's tied in, except Jesus said, no, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I think of Jesus' uh, approach to the man at the pool of Siloam, the crippled guy, and the question that he poses to him. Uh, you know, do you want to be well? Um, are you willing to make the effort to stand? And are you willing to face all the changes that will come with uh, all the new responsibilities that will arrive, all the new expectations of you, uh, how everything is going to change if you take action? And... Um, well, and that guy's that guy's response is pretty instructive, because what's the first thing he says? He lists all the excuses for why it hasn't worked in the past and why it's everybody else's fault and yeah. nobody helps him and everybody gets in first and yeah, that's a that's a pretty prime example of what is common to man. Right, exactly. There's a big difference in you know, am I willing to be changed? Oh yeah, there's a big difference between am I willing to be changed. And am I willing to change? Uh, am, am I willing to commit myself to the process? Knowing that um, I don't have the uh, fortitude to keep up that resolution for long. Here's the one thing I did know coming into recovery. Allie had real skepticism, and I don't blame her. When I got into recovery, uh, I, you know, I was in the pink cloud. I was uh, just so uh, optimistic and excited and I was selling it before I owned it. I was preaching it. I turned over a new leaf and she had seen me turn over a thousand leaves. I had turned over so many. I was, I was the king of the resolution. Um, but I did not have stick-to-itiveness. And if recovery depended on my stick-to-itiveness, I never would have lasted. But recovery has a stickiness of its own. It stuck to me. I couldn't supply the willpower, but by God's grace, I learned willingness. Uh, and part of it, I mean, there are, there, are, there are many, I think, I think there are many keys to maintaining willingness. One is, for example, I have to continue uh, to work against, to fight against, to find a way to resist my natural tendency to... Uh, forget uh, the consequences of acting out. It's just, it sounds like my my phone is going crazy here. Um, let me back up. One of the things that I must do here's one of the keys to maintaining willingness. Willingness. 
Uh, my addict is a great forgetter. Uh, one of the phenomena in uh, sex addiction recovery is what we call euphoric recall, where my brain plays this trick on me where I remember this rosy moment during acting out, maybe that first hit of lust and the thrill that came along with it. And I stop the tape right there and I forget what followed. I forget all the ugliness and the loneliness and the shame and the pain and the desperation and the self-hatred. And, but what I remember is just that euphoric experience. And uh, if I allow myself to dwell on that euphoric recall, then in times of pain or disappointment or desperation, um, the odds are fairly decent if I'm all alone that I'm going to reach once again for that false relief. What helps counter that is to get together with other guys in honest conversation especially with new guys. That's one of the reasons that I like to help fix guys, to fish guys out of the soup. Because every time I hear the story of a desperate man still caught in that web, it reminds me of my own experience. It refreshes my memory and I go, oh yes, that's why I don't want to go back. That's the whole story I remember now. Uh, over time, that'll fade unless I'm engaged in regular conversation with other people. So uh, that is one of the uh, we we both found an article on willingness, and there's a list of reasons for lack of willingness that was really good, and that was one of them. Uh, one says memory can be a treacherous thing sometimes. People can forget how miserable things were at the end of their addiction and they can start to think back to the days when it felt like alcohol and drugs brought them pleasure. This is known as romancing the drinker drug. It can sap the willingness to stay sober if it is allowed to continue unchecked. Right. So that is one. Let me read a couple of these others and get your guys' response. Uh, the first says some will enter recovery because they feel coerced in some way. You talked about that. They decide to accept help because of pressure from family and friends and not because they really want to be sober. This usually means the individual will be using recovery as a way to buy time, which you called bargaining. Yeah, you can't. Uh, as soon as they feel. Yeah, entering it, recovery to save a marriage doesn't work. Yeah, it says as soon as they feel that it's safe for them to return to their addiction, they will do so. Yeah. Uh, the second one says many, uh, and I had to chuckle a little bit, Mark, when you brought up the word ambivalence, since it's underlined here, many addicts suffer from ambivalence. This means they have feelings and thoughts and attitudes that are contradictory. They have a strong desire to enter recovery and escape the pain of addiction, while at the same time, they have a strong desire to continue with alcohol or drug abuse or whatever. Until this ambivalence towards uh, the abuse is resolved, it will be difficult for the individual to summon enough resolve to finally quit their addiction. Yeah. And so let's, let's talk a little about this, this two-mindedness. Yeah, and I think one of the keys to overcoming that ambivalence, and I know that ambivalence well, is first of all, we have to face it and be honest about it. What I uh, told myself and others for the longest time was that I didn't really want to pursue lust. That somehow lust was pursuing me, that I was that what I really wanted uh was to have uh 
you know, to be sexually uh, pure and to be faithful to my wife and uh, not to objectify women. And, and uh, that, you know, I pretended that the pursuit of lust was distasteful to me. Well, that's a lie. Uh, the truth is that uh, there is a part of me still to this day, 18 years in, uh, that finds uh, lust attractive. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> and uh, I can't repent of something that I don't admit. Uh, now, if I will uh, admit my propensity to lust and not laugh it off and not make light of it, if I won't go to shame, but at the same time will not excuse it, if I will keep it before my mind and 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 let my brothers use that for me as a warning to keep me far away from the edge, uh, then, then uh, I, I I can then I think lean in. My experience is I can lean in more strongly to to my desire for holiness. Uh, so back. I think this is what I was, what I feel a lot with that whole comfortable, ugly furniture picture. Yeah. But I think the honesty, uh, there's a couple layers. One is that, yeah, I, I do know that's an ugly chair, but I do actually like it. Mm -hmm. But the next part, and and I think this is accurate within the analogy, is I can move it out to the trash can. Mm -hmm. But in my life, with the stuff I move out, that trash doesn't get picked up. It will sit out there. I'll see it out there. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll have those romantic moments of like, yeah, you know what, that new chair we brought in that looks so much better isn't broken in. I will, <laughs> I will desire yeah, to yeah. bring it back in the house when nobody's around. Um. And I think it does take that level of honesty that if I just pat myself on the back because I put it out next to the trash cans, right? I'm setting myself up for that moment when I drag it back in the house. Yeah, right. Well, it's interesting. What, I, what I'm struggling with right now is that uh, when uh, I blew up my career and my marriage, uh, I lost my reputation. I I lost every um, adjective that could describe who I was, mm -hmm. and um, in the last season of time, I started to gain a couple of those adjectives back and gained a couple of new titles, mm -hmm. and yet I've fallen right back into the same trap, mm -hmm. to where I want people, I I want to have a reputation, I want to be esteemed, I want to be honored. Yeah. And when the fact of the matter is what I need to be is who I am in Christ. Yeah. What I need to be is a guy who's messed up. Yeah. Uh a bunch of things and is still working to to make it all right. Yeah. And uh so every time I've I've uh I've bowed up and come face to face with the fact that here I am putting on airs again, here I am putting on a costume again, I'm getting slapped back down. Yeah. And so now it's like, well, you know, so is all the hard work for naught? You know, I'm thinking that's kind of the message of the, of the enemy because it's certainly not. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I don't, I don't want to dive in again. I don't want to carry my ugly chair out to the trash again. Yeah, yeah. 
Why did I bring it back in the house in the first place? <laughs> and and I don't want to take it back out there because, you know, I, I like the email I got yesterday from this musician. Right, yeah. I, I, I like um, getting invited to do these things yeah, yeah. that I haven't been invited to do for in a long time. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, watch yourself, yeah. Mark, because uh, you're just, it's... It's old traps. Yeah, I saw a sign today in a shop window on Main Street that I really liked. It said, be yourself. Everybody else is taken. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The the next one. Some individuals have unrealistically high expectations of recovery, and they become disappointed when things do not happen as expected. This disappointment may mean that their willingness to stay sober begins to wane. Yeah. It takes time to rebuild a life away from alcohol and drugs or whatever. And if people, this is all from alcoholrehab.com, so... Uh, Put it into your life however you want. And if people have expectations that are too high, they will be let down. Mm-hmm. So, go. Yeah. I'm, I just have to read what's on the page. You have to make it make sense Well, there's a great, you know, there's a great saying in recovery that an expectation is just a premeditated resentment. Oof. Uh, and if I expect that, uh, if I commit to recovery, my marriage will survive. Uh, if, uh, you know, that if I attach expectations for what's going to happen, uh, I'm just setting myself up for, uh, resentment and resentment then leads to, uh, acting out again is what happens. Uh, we feel betrayed, uh, I, we feel uh, entitled. Can I tweak that a little bit? Sure. Because I, I love that quote that expectations are premeditated resentments. Um, and I was always the guy that was like, yeah, I don't expect anything. And so I'm never disappointed. Um, I want to call BS on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. There's two things. Hope is one of the three eternal things that remain with us, uh, beyond the grave and expectations and hope get tied together inappropriately, I think, Mm -hmm. because as I lower expectations, that means I lower hope. And if I lower hope, that means I don't believe God has the strength or desire to do what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. So first I got to figure out how to detach. It's like having, (laughs) picturing stereo faders on a mixer where I've got two channels, the left and right that go up and down together. I've got to separate those. So I that my hope have can no idea be... what you're talking about, but but Mark is tracking perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> I need my hope to be totally maxed out, and and deal with expectation as a separate thing, and that's hard. I I have no mm-hmm. no way to do that other than to be aware of it and say no. My hope is still in God that He is good and powerful enough to do this however he chooses. Yes. And that's where my expectation is usually attached to the how it will be done, and then I'm disappointed like God disappointed me because he wasn't on my agenda. Yeah. But on the expectation side, throwing out all expectations has a piece that is uh, lacking love for myself or others. If I say to my kid, man, I don't expect anything from you. (laughs) I have no expectations. That's actually crappy parenting. Oh, sure, sure. I I need to have an appropriate expectation of you're able to do this Mm -hmm. with an honesty of you might fail and I'll still love you. And and I have to say this to myself and receive that from God, right, as much as anybody else. So 
Yeah, uh, yeah it's no, not I think having it's... unrealistic expectations. Right. It's... it's having right expectations and knowing that my identity is fully in Christ and never in jeopardy if the expectation isn't met. Yeah. One of my early mentors defined expectation as, as uncommunicated. He would talk about how um, an expectation we set up for ourselves or, or others, uh, um, when it's not met... Um, that's when we're, we become disappointed and angry. Mm-hmm. So similar to what you said, he said it with a whole lot more words, but the idea is that if, if I have an expectation that um, Aaron is going to uh, do something for me, even though I'm not asked him for it or we've had him having a conversation for it, um, then I'm disappointed. Let's say, say I was thinking Aaron might call me mm-hmm. and he doesn't call me. Well, that's a completely unfair, right. and uncommunicated, expectation. So I think in, in a lot of ways, even the expectations we have for ourselves and that type of idea, we're setting ourselves up for resentment or for disappointment or for anger when we're not clearing them with our silences, we're not talking about them. And right. I think in talking about them in honesty, they, they can go from unrealistic, like Aaron was saying, to a more appropriate goal or right. um, you know, uh, pursuit of a value or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that I try to do with guys early on, uh, and it was done for me, is to try to calibrate expectation. Good word. For example, um, uh, I remember an early sponsor telling me that, you know, this absolute freedom from lust that I experienced during the very first weeks of recovery, when just even the thought of porn was a million miles from my mind. And I was certain that I would never, ever certainly be tempted by, uh, to, to patronize a prostitute again. Uh, that, uh, that, you know, my love for my wife was pure, sincere, and unalloyed, and it was never going to diminish. And, uh, you know, we turned the corner at, uh, and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, a, a sponsor saying, you're going to be back in the thick of it again. Uh, th- that temptation will return, and uh, so that so that uh, if he hadn't done that, and I do see guys, uh, and I know it happens to women as well. If I think that that temptation is sin, and I expect never, not only not to sin in that way, but not to be tempted to sin in that way again, and the temptation comes, and I find myself drawn to it, now I begin to panic. Because it wasn't supposed to be this way, uh, and that that does happen at times in recovery, where uh, the, you know the the going gets tough, uh, the enemy comes back with reinforcements, uh, the battle is engaged, and somehow I don't expect there still to be a battle. Uh, I get yeah. discouraged, and capitulate. Well, that leads to the next one nicely, which is uh, another reason for a lack of willingness is that an individual can become stuck in their recovery, and this is a drain on their willingness. The usual reason for why people become stuck is that they're faced with a problem that they don't want to deal with, and until they face this challenge, there can be no further progress. Instead, the individual will either relapse or become a dry drunk. So... Uh, I think that's the first battle of beginning uh, the journey is done, and the thought can be, okay, good, there's no more battles. But, boy, there are many little battles and skirmishes along the way. 
What is a dry drunk? Explain it to us. Yeah, a dry drunk is a person who is not doing the work of recovery. They've confused abstinence with sobriety. And uh, they think that just because they're not engaging in their identified drug of choice, uh, that somehow they're sober. Uh, when really uh, they've chosen another medication. And when we are using, it doesn't matter what we're using, it can be something as, you know, outwardly and obviously sinful as illicit sex or illegal drugs, or it can be something as, uh, you know, apparently praiseworthy as work or religion. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going away from our real selves. We become, uh, uh, we're unhappy and difficult to be with. Uh, There's this whole complex of behaviors. Uh, You know, we become, you know, true recovery, true sobriety is marked by humility. This, we're right-sized and we're, we're the endeavoring to be the person God made in the world that God made. When we're not walking in recovery, pride takes a hold. And, uh, you know, that arrogance comes through in all kinds of ways that makes life unpleasant for us and for those around us. So a dry drunk is an unpleasant and unhappy person who is still congratulating him or herself on the fact that he's not smoking, drinking, or doing whatever it was that was the identified problem. So, okay. so getting stuck yeah, uh, or becoming a dry drunk, like you said, how does one get unstuck? What, what, what have you seen in the past? How have you gotten unstuck, Nate? Um, yeah. What have you seen others do to get unstuck? Because I, I'd put myself in that category. I've hit that layer of the archaeological dig, and yeah, I'm stuck. You know, it's it's usually some other um, uh, delusion that I'm being asked to surrender. Uh, some other uh, medication I'm being asked to give up. Uh, some other action that I'm being called to take that I'm resisting, that I just need to take. Um, it's, it's when I try to call a halt to the process. God is relentless in drawing us toward freedom and healing. And he's, you know, we're always sicker than we think we are. And God's love, of course, for us is greater than we can understand. Uh, and it's when I try to call a halt to the process, when I try to say, this is it. Okay, I'm done surrendering. I'm done admitting. I'm done repenting. Uh, I'm done changing. That's uh, that's where the the process grinds to a halt, and then our freedom begins to erode. Um. So, uh, I'm not sh- I'm not sure where uh, that is. Uh, where I am in that process right now, frankly. Um, I'm wondering, I hate to even say this. I don't even want to say this. Uh, My daughter, God bless her, has quit smoking and drinking in the same, uh, at the same time. Uh, And the reason she quit 
smoking and drinking was that she'd quit smoking 50 times unsuccessfully and then came to recognize that uh, smoking and, and she doesn't drink abusively or obsessively or compulsive or, or uh, I don't think I, I wouldn't classify her as an alcoholic or uh, she doesn't like to get drunk, but she saw this association between alcohol and cigarettes. And she said, you know, I can't stop smoking unless I also stop drinking. Hmm. Um, and Allie asked me last night, we talked, we were, we were having a pretty frank conversation about, uh, about recovery. She wanted to know about the temp the level of temptation that I faced, especially early in recovery, uh, to return to my, uh, old behavior. And then she said this, and I'm sitting there, we're having a conversation. Allie stopped drinking, uh, a couple of months ago. And she was my best drinking buddy. Um, so, so we're having a conversation and she has a glass of water and I have a bottle of beer. And she said, um, do you think that those beers that you have every night are a substitute for your old medication? And I wanted to say, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> and I'm beginning to wonder, but, but, the, but I'm hearing the same thing in my brain that I heard around uh, my sexual behavior, which is if I give up this innocent and legal, let's talk about masturbation. If I give up this innocent and in my mind, legal and very human indulgence, um, I'll be uh, impoverishing my life and threatening my life and life will be over and life will be diminished if I, and I'm hearing that same thing right now. If I give up my freedom to drink, I'll lose freedom. Maybe that's not true. Maybe I'll gain freedom. Uh, and I hate to even say this because this is committing me, you know, publicly to a conversation that I have been dedicated to avoiding now for quite a while. <laughs> yep. Those are the important conversations. And now it is documented. Yeah, crap. We want to make a special make a special apology to Nate Larkin on today's podcast for the future difficulties it will create. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm gonna touch on one final uh bullet. I will skip a couple of them here. But I want to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Some individuals will have other mental health problems as well as their addiction. Some people have untreated depression or uh, another dual diagnosis. Mm -hmm. They will find it difficult to maintain their willingness to stay sober. This is because their other condition will make recovery unsatisfying and prevent progress. Mm -hmm. I think this is an important one to touch on. Um, so what, what are your thoughts when I read that as a reason for a lack of willingness and recovery? Oh, it's very real, no doubt. I feel uh, so. Yeah, I feel blessed uh, never to have uh, battled depression at this point in my life. Doesn't mean uh, that I uh, I don't know what the statistics are on what percentage of Americans uh, encounter or experience depression at some point in their lives. I know it's very high, and I know that I'm I know at least intellectually that I'm not immune. Uh, and I, I, I certainly have 
seen and know brothers in recovery who really uh, couldn't make progress until their depression was treated. Yeah, it's a very yeah. real thing. I, th- I think that can come as an unrealistic hope that by solving whatever the addiction problem is, this other thing will go away. Right. And when it doesn't, uh, I know there. I, I have a friend named Paul Corona who's just an awesome doctor. He's written some great books on uh, these issues. Yeah. And I, I had sent tons of people to him, and I was going through a time we were uh, – just about to adopt Elijah. We had spent all of our money. I was doing tours uh, away from home to try and make extra money. We had just moved back into the parsonage in San Luis, and it was under construction, so we had three kids in the one-bedroom portion of the house for months. There were workers coming in. It was just awful, and I was just in a pit, and I thought, okay, once I go to Africa and bring back my son and these workers are done in the house, everything will be fine in my head mm-hmm. and months later when all of that had taken place i felt like i was in a deeper pit than ever yeah and i was i was really resistant to take my own advice and say i gotta go down to paul and see what's going on in the end i did i got some medicine uh and within about six months i didn't have to take the medicine and it was i was back on track i just needed to be my brain needed to be put back on track, and it's a whole different conversation. But I know that feeling of an unrealistic, if this happens, all of these things will be put back in place. And, yeah. man, when that doesn't happen, that can that can sap you of willingness in every area of your life. Yeah, I think that fallacy can run in both directions. I can begin—I can believe, on one hand, that um, if I'll do the recovery work, the depression will be solved. Uh, and that very well may not be true. There's also the opposite fallacy is if I'll treat the depression, the addiction will disappear. No, I still have to do the work. I still have to do the work. Right. Now, I'll I'll tell you what, here's here's my commitment on this, because I think this uh, will help ask those questions. I will get... Uh, Dr. Corona on here so we can have the full discussion on this because I think whether you're at a church that is teaching you that for some reason your brain is not an organ like every other part of your body that can get broken and need help uh, or it's just uh, it's usually pride for most of us that we just don't want to think we're crazy and if we go to a counselor or get some medicine we're crazy uh, let's let's get him on here and have that conversation fully. Oh, oh that'd and be whether great. Whether or not you're dealing, yeah, whether or not you're dealing with it, or someone in your family or your life, and you don't know how to understand it. Let's let's answer those stinking questions. Okay. All right. Well, but good conversation. We're at the end of our time, so it's not it's not happening today. Mm. <laughs> Go for it, Nate. Yeah, this has been a, this has been a good conversation, and man, it uh, I, it's so good to, just to be back in the room here with Mark and have Aaron on the phone and and uh, and, and have and this Newton conversation. And Mondo so want to be here, yeah. Uh, so that they they will be back soon. Okay. All right. Well, I think we've come to the end of our time. This one uh, will be ready to upload shortly, I guess. Mark Mark's the man who works the magic and 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 
turns this conversation into something worth listening to. Thank you, Mark, for that hard work. My pleasure. Uh, and of course, Aaron is also involved in that technological magic. I don't even I don't even begin to understand how you guys put this together. But uh, grateful that you do. All right. Until uh, next time, hopefully next week, but certainly next time. I'm Nate. I'm Mark. I'm Aaron. And we're your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh-huh. Oh, Cafe and Junior P. Preaching recovery.